You're listening to the Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from guest speaker Matthew Lethen. Hold your applause till the end, please. <laughs> and questions. Uh, well, good morning, Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's so good to see you all again. Um, I get up here maybe every other month. And uh, it's always a privilege, uh, particularly after such a nice worship, um, a time in worship, um, just where our hearts need to be in that calmness. So again, welcome. The candles have been lit, and we want to celebrate the babe uh, whose light shone into our darkness and led us out into safety, into his kingdom of light. And last week, Pastor Aaron kicked off her Advent celebration by uh, introducing us to what it means for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor. Not just the counselor, but the wonderful counselor whose insight we need each and every day. Now this is one of the four titles that this beloved child from Isaiah 9 would bear, that he would carry, wonderful counselor. Um, And so today, we've got the candles lit, we've got four weeks of Advent, we've got four titles to look at today, we'll be looking at number two, Mighty God. Um, And as we start, I just want to read our Isaiah passage. This is chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And each week, you'll probably have this memorized by New Year's Day, but I think it's good that we go there together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the Lord add, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So today I have the privilege of introducing that second title for this child whom we know is Emmanuel, this God with us, Savior. And this morning we're expanding our awe from his attributes, his wonderful counselor. Uh, We're considering now his power, his strength, his authority with which he reveals himself as the mighty God. And I thought a good way to do this was to introduce um, a literary classic that we only think about maybe at this time of year, and that is A Christmas Carol. How did you know that? So I'm just framing our discussion within Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol. We remember that he uh, takes Ebenezer Scrooge through three phases, the past, the present, and the future. You may have noticed, if you're a theater goer, that A Christmas Carol is playing in town this month. All right. So we're going to repurpose some of Dickinson's idea of past, present, and future witnesses to come to terms with this unique title, Mighty God, which further identifies the babe in the manger and draws us into more and better worship of him. The prophet Isaiah will be our guide framing the significance of the title in the past, Mighty God. The apostle John will then be our guide in the present, that is, during his lifetime in Jesus' ministry, which we'll call the gospel present. And finally, we'll glimpse Jesus 
uh, revealed in his uh, warrior-like state um, in the future through John's heavenly vision in the book of Revelation. All right, so we'll have you out of here by supper, I think. <laughs> it's a joint service today, didn't you know? Oh, just teasing. Uh, so prophetic past, Isaiah is going to serve as our faithful guide, and he ministers at a time of great turmoil within Israel. He's seen the Assyrians invade. Uh, they've come and encompassed Jerusalem at one point. So the northern territories have been taken away. He knows the Babylonians are coming next for Judah within a couple generations. Incredibly bleak times. So wars and rumors of war are going to characterize uh, his life and times, rampant corruption, palace intrigue, willful ignorance of God's word. Uh, and so that's his world. And in fact, he's called into that world in Isaiah 6. If you remember his commissioning, uh, he's told that what he says will not be heard or, or understood or seen or perceived. And yet it's into this period of chaos that he's called to minister. Yes, he was called to decree divine judgment and destruction and doom. He was also called to speak a message of life and hope and new beginnings. And Aaron shared that with us earlier, of restoration and refreshment. Those who dwelled in darkness would see a great light. A shoot of Jesse would grow out of the stump that would be hacked down. A young woman would bear a child who himself would bear the divine presence. And he would be known by several names. To us, mighty God. To Isaiah and his audience, this name was El Gibor. El Gibor. So you're ready for a Hebrew lesson, I hope. That's my intent, right? To make you elementary uh, Hebrew masters here. So the name in our text of Isaiah, the original text is El Gibor, and it's a two-part designation. The first part, El, you will have heard, is a shortened form for the generic term for God, Elohim. We've seen the shortened form most recently in Emmanuel, the last syllable being the divine epithet, El. For us, Emmanuel is a singular name. But in Hebrew, the name forms a complete thought binding three separate words together, literally, with, us, God. Im, Anu, Eil. And so Eil forms the first part of this divine title, which we translate as Mighty God. Gibor is derived from the three-letter combination G-B-R, all right? G-B-R. Gibor is formed from that uh, consonant, root consonant, and depending on which vowels you put in between those consonants, you get different words. One example of this term is gebura, gebura, and this signifies the strength or might connected with God's spirit, wisdom, or righteousness. I found a helpful quote from the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament to help us understand this term. Geburah is God showing his might in saving acts. These are acts done in his name. God's name is identified with his Geburah or might. So this divine might is associated with his works of creation. Psalm 89 specifically will use this term. Uh, to talk about the mountains that he's made. His deliverance associated with the Exodus, 
right? Gabura is on display when, when the people leave Egypt, as well as, as his salvific works decreed for a future time that also is referenced with Gabura. This is God's might being enacted through his power and his name. Interestingly, later rabbinic tradition is going to substitute God's name, which they don't want to offend using. So instead of using his name, they will substitute the term Gebura for the divine name. And so in their understanding, to call upon the power with which God works is to call upon his name without risking the offense of misusing his name, Gebura. And so Gibor is formed from those same three consonants, GBR. For our purposes, the term is associated with warriors and military activity. Gibor is strength and valor that one might expect a hero to exhibit. We might recall that David's mighty men were termed the Giborim. This is the plural form for Gibor, the Giborim. So putting this all together, when Isaiah 9.6 calls the coming ruler Eil Gibor, he foresees a divine king from the Davidic line who will exercise extraordinary qualities, namely his application of Geborah, that power uniquely associated with God's mastery over his works to bring about saving acts in the deliverance of his people. Eil Gibor, mighty God. So again, in the context of Isaiah's day with exile and the threat of more subjugation looming, uh, such a declaration had to be describing a future setting that would have been inconceivable to his audience. The advent of El Gibor was a source of hope, but the Israelites would not encounter this kind of deliverance during their lifetimes. In fact, the prophecy's complete fulfillment would take 700 years before he arrived. That's what we're celebrating today. We turn now to our second guide who whisks us away from biblical prophecy to the narrative accounts showcasing Jesus' life and ministry. In terms of Ebenezer Scrooge's Christmas journey, we're calling this aspect the gospel present. And we'll spend the bulk of our time here. We know that John was one of the 12 disciples who plainly saw and heard the events that he describes in his gospel. And over time, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, John would recognize all that he had witnessed as the fulfillment of Isaiah's designation of the Messiah as El Gibor, mighty God. In fact, he patterns his 20-chapter testimony around this understanding that Jesus is the one that Isaiah foresaw. He seeks to give his readers many proofs that Jesus' earthly ministry revealed his unique identity. As he closes his gospel, this is his summary statement, his thesis. This is what we read in John 20, verses 30 through 31. <clears throat> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The key word in this summary is signs. In John's understanding, these signs served as the evidence that Geburah, divine might, was on display. He's going to selectively present six examples 
by which to convince his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed Davidic king who Isaiah foretold would come. However, we find that John views these signs in the Old Testament prophetic symbolic sense. That is, he doesn't focus on the miraculous aspect of water turning to wine. Rather, he emphasizes the signs as the authentication of the one exercising that divine power and authority. And we often get that through utterances from people in his narrative. It could be Pharisees plotting his overthrow. It could be disciples. It could be people that are just amazed with what they see. So through their mouths, John is helping us see that the one who's doing these signs needs to have our full attention. In fact, we'll see that those who focused on the gift rather than the giver actually missed out on what the sign intended to signify. That is, to show that Jesus was doing what only God could do. And one scholar helps us explain the slight distinction between miracles and sign, because often the term miracles is overlaid onto what John is calling a sign. But he uses the word sign instead of what he would use for miracle. Here's that quote. A sign is a symbol laden, but not necessarily miraculous public work of Jesus, selected and explicitly identified as such by John for the reason that it displays God's glory in Jesus, who is thus shown to be God's true representative. So just to contrast that, in John 12, Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so from our understanding, there's nothing miraculous about that, but certainly we would say that is a fulfillment of something prophetic from the minor prophets. We might say that is a sign, okay? So in short, the sign points to the one producing the work. And in these six episodes, that we'll share, uh, they'll share a few features that distinguish them from other works. Certainly he did more than six uh, that Jesus performed. But here was John's criteria, so it seems, for sig signaling out these six. <clears throat> First, these were all public works done in view of disciples and unbelievers. All right, so they're not just words but their works done in public in the sight of unbelievers as well as disciples. Number two, John will explicitly call them signs. Number three, each sign will be authenticating Jesus' power or his geburah, and that will, that will happen to glorify God. And so I'd ask that we keep these, this short three-item list in mind as we briefly survey each of these signs. They're public works. John's explicitly gonna call them signs and they're gonna reveal God's glory, okay? If you're not still figuring out how many cookies 300 dozen is, I found myself <laughs> thinking about that. That's a lot of cookies. <clears throat> Number one, water to wine. The first two signs take place in Cana. First, Jesus attends a wedding and keeps the party going by changing water into wine. Based on the volume of jugs at that time and place, archaeologists have determined, uh, some commentators estimate that Jesus produced 120 to 150 gallons of wine. And here's what we read, here's what we read in 2.11. This is John explicitly calling this water to wine a sign. 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee 
and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And so it's through this first work, maybe the disciples are still feeling him out. It's through this first work that the disciples believed in him, John tells us. And after each of these six, I'm going to say, what a mighty God. And feel free to join me. Ready? What a mighty God. The nobleman's son. The second sign has a Gentile official based in Capernaum traveling to Cana to seek Jesus for his son's healing. So Jesus performs the sign at the wedding in Cana. He then goes to Jerusalem. And in John's account, he turns over the tables. Right? And some would say that that's a sign because it meets the three criteria we're talking about. After the table turning over, he comes back to Cana, and this is where the nobleman meets him. He seeks Jesus' healing for his ill son. And we, re we read that with a word, the official's son was restored to health. And it's summarized, chapter 4, verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What a mighty God. Interestingly, it's in this passage where Jesus uses that word wonders that's often translated miracle, and it's a negative connotation. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this was not a compliment to his generation. What a mighty God. The healing at the pool. For the third sign, we learn of a man who was unable to use his legs for 38 years we become aware of the common belief that he would be healed if he could just make it into the pool. This is Bethesda. If he could just get in there, when the angel stirred the waters, his, uh, his legs would be restored. And so he's anchored to the pool in hopes that he can reach the water in time. But in this, his third work, Jesus just decides to heal him on the spot. Pick up your mat and go home. John's explicit treatment of this sign waits until later in chapter 6, verse 2, um, and here's what he says in 6.2. Again, for the man whose legs were healed. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And again, in 7.31, some think maybe he had in mind also this lame man that was healed. In 7.31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, Will he do more signs than this man has done? What a mighty God. The feeding of the multitudes. In this fourth account, we learn that several thousand people are fed with a mere five loaves and two fish. This account is the lone account to appear in all four Gospels that we would consider miraculous. And it is the first time John mentions a crowd following Jesus. They've seen the signs. He now has people following him in great numbers. And we see the term sign applied in 614 for this feeding of the thousands. 614. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. What a mighty God. Sadly, we learn at this point, at the conclusion of chapter 6, that many who had been following Jesus were now offended with his words, particularly as he talked about needing to eat the, the flesh of the Son of Man and needing to drink his blood. That was a bridge too far for many, and they turned aside. They had tasted the bread and the fish, 
and yet because they were overly focused on the gift and not the giver, they did not perceive who it was that fed them. In fact, following this event, we read that many demanded that he provide a sign for his claims. Right? This is after they just participated in this, great, in this great work. Jesus tells them at the end of this incident, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And again, so they said to him, this is how they, they reply, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Interesting, even John the Baptist goes through a period of doubting. You remember that he's in prison and he has his followers, John the Baptist, come to see Jesus and ask him, are you the one that we should expect? Uh, and so this is a summary from Matthew 11. And instead of answering John directly, do you remember what Jesus does? He gives him an indirect answer and he says something to the effect of, you go tell John what you're seeing and hearing. The lame walk, the blind see, I'm ministering to the poor, the dead are raised. Um, very interesting that he knew John the Baptist would have a you know, satisfactory answer with that. And so John knew, John the Baptist, uh, that the one to come would be performing these great signs. The healing of the blind man is our fifth sign. And we're presented with a man who's born uh, without the ability to see. Uh, and the argument then goes from whose fault it is that he can't see. Is this this, this man who sinned that he's blind? Is it his parents? Uh, but rather, uh, John narrates uh, that this event is better understood in terms of, of the man's blindness being used to reveal God's glory. It's not about his sin or his parents' sin. That is, uh, the purpose of this man's life will only be revealed once Jesus displays his glory, okay? But meanwhile, he suffers with blindness. But at the right time, the Messiah would be revealed. In 9.16, we read uh, that some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, Jesus, that is, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Of course, he's healing on the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. What a mighty God. It's interesting that this man who's blind and healed, Jesus later finds him, and the man professes faith in the Lord. We don't have that testimony in chapter 5 with the lame man. We know that he, he tells people that Jesus healed him, the authorities question him, uh, but there's no indication that the man who can now walk after 38 years became a follower of Jesus. He may have, but John explicitly says that this man did in John 9. Perhaps to contrast this man in chapter 5, both of whom were healed, but maybe just one explicitly uh, was said to become a follower. What a mighty God, indeed. The grand finale, maybe you've guessed, is Lazarus. This is my favorite, um, and it kind of concludes the 11th chapter, and these six signs are uh, in, encased within the first 11 chapters. We know that that's considered the book of signs, and then chapters 11 and 12 is a bit of a bridge, 
And chapters 13 through 20 is all about Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And really, 13 and 20, that Passion Week, beginning with him riding in the town on the donkey, uh, is called uh, the Book of Exaltation, right? And all these events take place in a week from John 13 to John 20. But our Book of Signs ends with Lazarus in chapter 11. So Jesus goes to Bethany. This is a village outside Jerusalem, maybe a couple miles. They've been friends. Uh, he knows her sister, Mary and Martha. Um, and this work would certainly point to God's glory displayed in Jesus, revealing him as the authentic representative, exercising Geburah, that divine power that creates and delivers. <clears throat> so look at a couple verses here. 1147, this is following Lazarus rising from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Again, just using that key word that John is flagging for us, that this was to uh, tell us who was doing the work. This man performs many signs. And again in 1218, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign, namely raising Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead four days and had begun to smell his sister reports. We also learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life in this famous I am statement. John will give us seven I am statements through his gospel where he reveals the unity of father and son. Of course, I am, that special name, uh, references the burning bush and Moses where God reveals himself as I am to Moses. These are the words that Jesus will now use um, in this case, to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And he'll do that seven times, right? So John is a man of patterns. Uh, and we remember how he ended his gospel. I'm writing this so you believe, so you know what I know. He makes it very clear. But just in case John's readers missed what was happening in these six accounts, he provides a summary statement as he transi transitions from this first 11 chapters, this book of signs, to the book of exaltation. Again, that Passion Week. As he transitions, here's what he says in 1237. <clears throat> and this is sad. This uh, evidence is what Isaiah reported in chapter 6 that many would see and hear but not perceive or understand. 1237, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Are you kidding me? Apocalyptic future. Now we could stop there with what we've shared. I believe we've adequately covered how scripture portrays Jesus uh, with his rightful title, Mighty God of Isaiah 9.6. He exercised the divine power over natural and physical phenomena that only God could. He restored the lame and blind. He raised the dead. He fed the multitudes. He turned the water into wine. We should remember that this was only a sample of all that he did in his earthly ministry. John tells us that much more happened, but he just didn't write it down in his gospel. John again takes us on that last leg of our journey, but this time we travel with John in the spirit as we ascend with him into his heavenly vision of revelation. Near the end of this apocalyptic vision, we're in chapter 19, we see the Lord and his armies displayed in splendor leading his cavalry against the forces of darkness in one last cosmic clash. Listen to this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Gibor language. He's a warrior. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Warrior language. El Gibor. More than anywhere else in Scripture, we see the divine title on display in this Gibor warrior context. In a few verses following this majestic description, we read of the ease with which Jesus will capture the beast and his false prophet. In fact, there's only a couple lines devoted to this last stand against the evil one. Likewise, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul gives us a play-by-play encounter with the Lord's imposter, the pseudo-Messiah or Antichrist. And here's what Paul writes. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now that is power. With the same effort that I would expend to extinguish these candles, these flames, the Lord will overcome his breath, I'm sorry, he'll overcome his enemies with the breath of his mouth. The battle goes something like this. What a mighty God. Friends, we've taken a Dickinsonian journey today with the help of Isaiah and John as our guides. We've witnessed God's might and glory displayed through the biblical text, prophetic past, gospel present, and apocalyptic future. We explored the Geburah, God's creative and salvific power in Israel's history. We visited the six signs that John highlighted to reveal Jesus' true identity. And lastly, we looked ahead to the cosmic victory that the Lord will win as warrior at the head of heaven's armies. How now will we approach Jesus this Advent season? As helpless babe? Wonderful counselor? Mighty God? I want to share a couple of suggestions as we close. And the first is that as we pray in Jesus' name, we are calling upon his Geburah. We're calling upon his might to bring about his purposes. We saw that his name and his power are largely synonymous in some of these uh, historical texts. That is, when we pray, we do not need to predetermine what he will answer, if he will answer, whether the request is too small, too insignificant, or if it's too hard. All right, we just ask. We allow him to exercise his geburah. We know for nothing, nothing is impossible with him and he will work according to his purposes. Second, we take comfort in the fact that our faith is affirmed by many eyewitnesses. We just looked at one today. Uh, It's validated by prophecies that have spanned the centuries whom others have seen reflected in their life and times and validated. We also have a personal savior who resides within us by the power of his spirit, right? So we take comfort that our faith is legitimate. 
Lastly, we want to surrender our fears and uncertainty about this world, about all its trauma. We want to exchange our angst for the confidence that the El Gibor will rule over the forces that oppress us. To him belongs the victory. Let us pray. Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, may you receive our prayers and worship this morning. Thank you for revealing your great power through Jesus and for revealing him as your Son in plain view, both in the scriptural accounts and in the moments in each of our lives. He is the hope of the nations and the light of the world. Help us to walk in that light and bring glory to you during this Advent season the season of hope, where we seek to be more fully in your presence. In your mighty name, we ask for your blessing on these, your people. May they represent you in a dark world. May your light shine through all of us. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed day.